Good morning, Cross Point. How are you? I sent uh, my pastor friends in New England a picture of the frost on the roof of my car this morning, <laughs> informing them that we too pay a brutal price in the winter here in Huntington Beach, California. And two minutes later, I told them crisis averted, the defrost took care of it. The forecast is 75 degrees for a high. So I think we're going to be okay. Just a word of encouragement in prayer for you. Talked to one of our missionaries uh, around six o'clock this morning. And as I talked to many of our missionaries, I spoke to the two of them yesterday. It's become apparent that should they become infected with this virus, uh, they are largely going to be on their own at home. Uh, the infrastructure in many parts of the world is such that uh, medical care is available, but it won't be available to them because their hospitals are overwhelmed. Just yesterday, two healthcare workers from our church uh, sent me two very kind uh, emails I was not expecting, telling me what they're seeing as frontline healthcare workers. And they pleaded with me to remind you to take this seriously, to be cautious, to be safe. Uh, to not, in these, what we hope are the last few months of this ordeal, uh, to not be overconfident and put yourself at risk. As a church, we're going to continue to function safely as we have here outdoors. Our stance from the beginning is we will do all uh, that we are allowed to do within the health guidelines. You have been amazingly patient and kind and hardworking. Over a dozen people were here uh, just after sunrise to set all this up. So many of you in your own way from your own role in the body have been so helpful and supportive and encouraging. Uh, we're on track. We're on mission. Two people trusted Christ as Savior uh, this week. Last weekend, we baptized two more. We are supporting not only the work of the church from this corner, but our missionaries worldwide, worldwide in a way that is more generous, that is stronger than we ever have. Just please let's not stagger here at the end and suffer unnecessarily, and let's keep these people around the world, and particularly from our church family, those who are being impacted the most, who are suffering the most, who are working in the most dangerous places, let's keep them supported in our prayers. Does that sound like a good idea? Let's pray together. Father, we love you, and we thank you for how you've uh, just graced us, Lord, with calm and peace and courage and faith as a congregation. For some of us, Lord, this has been a time of, of renewal. Uh, this hardship has drawn many people in this congregation closer to you than they were before all this began. Others are really suffering. They've lost jobs. They've lost health. Uh, they are in real fear and uncertainty, Lord, because their circumstances are so difficult. Thank you that you can care for each one of us as if we were the only person in the world. Thank you that your love is that close and that personal. God, keep us faithful, keep us fruitful. Help us keep the great commandment to love you supremely and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And in all of this, with Christmas Eve approaching, we have this beautiful opportunity to share the gospel in three candlelight services. Lord, make us mindful of the real needs of people. What people most need is your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray, amen. If you'll open your Bibles, please, to a neglected part 
of Scripture, I'd like you to open your Bibles in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, please. Oops. All righty. They didn't cover that in seminary either. Remember the Sunday I fell off the stage? First time I fell off a stage, I fell off backwards. That was in Texas, so I guess you could say I'm getting better. Did you find your Bibles, and have you been able to open them in Matthew chapter 1? This Christmas, perhaps more than any other in our lifetime, we're forced to reckon with emotions and hopes and disappointments as those who waited for the first Christmas. From the birth of Jesus forward, every other remembrance of Christmas has been a celebration, a grateful, hopeful, confident celebration that he was actually born among us. The people who experienced his birth, the shepherds, the wide-eyed, smelly shepherds who were surprised as they watched their flocks at night, they were not expecting what they saw. The wise men who came much later, who were summoned by a miracle to meet the, not the baby, but the baby, uh, the, the little boy Jesus, perhaps some two years later, they were not expecting it. But Israel groaned and languished for centuries under the oppression of the Roman government. They could hear Sabbath by Sabbath in their synagogues, the book of Isaiah being read, promising that a Messiah would come, that God would not forget them forever, that someone would come and restore sight to the blind and set captives free. And after so many centuries of waiting, it must have simply seemed like so much hopeful fiction. 2,000 years after the birth of Jesus, we've been blessed by making Christmas something that is not really anything like those who waited for the actual birth of Jesus. We've romanticized it. We've put candy around it. We've put a veneer of niceness and frankly sometimes and a veneer that is a little bit absurd and comical. Have you ever sang the Christmas carol regarding a little drummer boy? We've been talking a great deal about the actual humanity of Jesus. Those of you moms who gave birth to little babies, was that a refreshing and invigorating experience for you? Or are you tired? You were exhausted, and so was the baby. There is no way in the world, then or now, that a mother who has just given birth and a baby that is just finding his way in the world needs a drum solo. That just doesn't seem like a proper Christmas gift. You'd probably be asked to leave the room if you came in with your drum to pay tribute to this young mom and her little baby. But we've had the luxury of creating all these stories and traditions and putting this lacquer of respectability and kindness and sweetness all around it. It's so sweet sometimes, it's almost saccharine. It's so sweet that it actually doesn't match the biblical record of what happened in the first Christmas when Jesus was actually born. And this long list of names in Matthew chapter 1 tells me that. 
I wonder how many times you've opened the Gospel of Matthew, maybe in the new year, to read through the New Testament as a New Year's resolution, and you've just skimmed these names. If you have, nobody could blame you. These are very obscure names. Some of them jump out at you as familiar, and you may remember some of the stories connected to the very few names in this list that seem to matter, but for the most part, they're obscure. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and from there a bunch of names you've never heard before, some of which you have no connection, no narrative connection to whatsoever. And many times, people who are reading the gospel for the first time will read this, and after this strong start in the first two verses, where Jesus is pointing, being pointed out as the Christ, in other words, the Messiah that was promised, the one that Isaiah spoke of, the one who actually was the son of King David, some 1,000 years earlier, who was the descendant of Abraham, that's the connection. Then come all these details, and you may reasonably ask yourself, why? If you pay very careful attention to the genealogy, you won't be rewarded very much because some of these names are obscure. They actually seem, by anybody's account, unimportant. But if you're aware of the way genealogies were kept in the ancient world, there will be a few names that jump out at you. And there'll be one title in particular, if you're familiar with the story, that might make you wince if you understand it in context. And these are the names of the women. In verse 3, in verse 5, again in verse 5, then in verse 6, and then in verse 16, in this long list of men's names, appear the name of women. There are women in the story, and they are not expected in a genealogy like this. This culture, much like ours, traces descent through the father. Some of these women's names are, frankly, would be obscure themselves. As I'm going to show you, some of these names refer to very shameful and painful incidents. And I just have to tell you, as a preacher this morning, I have my work cut out for me. And I literally prayed with some of the pastors this morning that I would do this well because some of the names and some of the stories of the women who lived through their experiences before Jesus was born are so tawdry, so grotesque, in some cases so violent that I don't want to offend anybody's conscience, steal anybody's innocence, and send your kid home depressed. Why are these stories here? Because they're real. Because life is gritty and hard. Because too many people have found, even up to our present day, with practically every material need provided for the vast majority of Americans, too many of us have found that the world is filled with powerful and abusive people, opportunistic people who will take advantage. The world is filled also with people who through necessity become desperate people and do whatever they need to do to survive. Some of you have lived that every day in your career as frontline workers serving people at their worst. The world has always been like that. 
That's why we have to peel back the veneer and look at the story of the birth of Jesus as it actually happened and consider the women in the story. Verse 3 says, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And there for the first time along the list of names, the name of a woman is mentioned. Her name is Tamar. I won't take the time but you should go back and read later Genesis chapter 38. It seems an interruption in the narrative of Genesis. Without getting into the details, which are among the most disturbing in Scripture, Judah was one of the founding sons from the line of Abraham who would give Jesus later the title in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, that Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's a majestic and a royal name. It ends up in the last book of the Bible as Jesus consummates history, tracing his lineage all the way back to this man. And if Genesis 38 were not in the Bible, you would think that Judah had always been a good man, but he wasn't. Genesis 38 casually relates that Judah befriended a wicked man from among the Canaanites idolatrous people who use sexuality in the worship of their gods as part of their fertility rites, Judah befriended him, took from among those women his wife, had sons by them, and two of them were so wicked that God killed them. And without getting into the marriage customs and laws, which are hard to understand and difficult to our ears anyway, in deference to the kids who may be listening... Judah went down on a trip, having set aside his daughter-in-law and exposing her to shame and leaving her unprotected as the law and custom required him to care for her once his wicked son had died. Judah casually found a temple prostitute, or what he believed was a temple prostitute sitting by the side of the road. This tells you that Judah had abandoned the faith handed down to Israel and was so callous about the way he used his sexuality that he was willing to sleep with a woman he had just seen on the side of the road, believing she was one of these women dedicated to the shrine to the cult of one of these false gods and was a religious prostitute, if you will. He went into her, left behind some personal belongings as a guarantee of payment, and later was told, Judah, your daughter-in-law is pregnant by prostitution. He said, that's shameful. Bring her out and let's burn her alive. And his daughter-in-law sent him back his own belongings, saying, I'm pregnant by the man who owns these things. And Judah said, she's more righteous than I am. If you were to portray that story in Hollywood, it would be very hard to do it without an R rating. That woman's name, Tamar, appears in the very beginning of the genealogy of Jesus. Tamar was a Canaanite woman who acted wickedly with Judah simply to survive. As you keep reading in verse 5, you discover a much more familiar name, the name of Rahab. Who was Rahab? Rahab was a prostitute in pagan Jericho who, to her credit and to her everlasting record in Scripture, believed God and helped Israel. 
As you keep reading in verse 5, you read the very familiar name of Ruth. Who was Ruth? Ruth was a Moabite woman. And again, without getting too much into the tawdry details, the nation of Moab existed itself because of incest. And the law of Moses specifically said that anyone from Moab could not come into the temple of the Lord for 10 generations. The Moabites were wicked beyond description and their women appear to have somewhat of a reputation, a famous reputation that these were the girls you wanted to date if you weren't walking with God as an Israelite. They were a continual stumbling block to Israel. And if you've read the, the story of Ruth, which is so often told to us as a romantic fiction of sorts, what you're going to discover is an Israelite family far from Israel coming back to Israel in disgrace with Ruth's famous mother-in-law, Naomi, saying, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me bitter because God has dealt harshly with me. And Ruth the Moabitess, absolutely with no good example whatsoever, with no reason to trust the God of Israel from the example she is being given by actual Israelites, including her now dead husband, said, don't ask me to leave you. I'll go wherever you go. Your people will be my people. My God will be your God. And Ruth, with absolutely no one in the world to defend her, enters Israel begins working the field and puts herself as a young woman and apparently a beautiful woman, puts herself at such risk that Boaz says, keep an eye on her so the young men don't abuse her. In desperation, Ruth and Naomi learn that there exists a kinsman redeemer. In other words, there is a man in Israel who may marry her and turn this entire situation around and bring her into family and what is in actually not a very romantic scene at all, but a, romantic, a scene filled with vulnerability for Ruth. She goes and lays down at his feet while he sleeps. She surprises him in his sleep. The truth of the gritty story is she is offering herself to him for protection in marriage. And the only thing that keeps Boaz from taking advantage the way his ancestor Judah once did is Boaz's own righteousness. He protects her reputation, later marries her, and that's how Ruth came to be in the genealogy of the Lord. Ruth the Moabite showed more faith than any of the Israelite women around her. She was a Moabite woman who believed God and risked abuse as a foreigner in Israel. Then in verse 6 comes the most compelling and perhaps the most well-known story of all, and frankly, the one that pastors most often teach poorly. I've done it myself until I looked more carefully at the text. Look in verse 6, please. We'll read from verse 5 just for the flow of it. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse. There's two foreign women mentioned in quick succession in verse 5. Verse 6, we're fully back to Israel. Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon. And here comes another name of another woman. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. 
You say, you made a mistake. There's no name there. You're right. It feels like 10 years ago because of this pandemic, but do you remember the Me Too movement? When some women came forward and absolutely destroyed the careers and reputations and in some case exposed powerful men as predatory criminals and sent them to prison. One of the things that came from that moment that continues into this moment, anytime someone is poorly treated by the authorities, the activists who bring that exposure say this, say their name. The woman who was abused has a name, say it. The man who was murdered has a name, say it. Why that slogan? Say his name, say her name. Because what the activist wants you to do is to remember when someone is taken advantage of violently, when take, someone is taken advantage of physically, they are not statistics. They are not mere stories. They're not merely going into a crime report. They're people who don't get to go home or go home shattered, never again to be the person they were before they encountered that kind of evil. Why then does it say that David had a son, famous King Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. Why isn't her name mentioned? If you know the Bible, you know her name. What is it? Bathsheba. Why is she described after all these other women? It can't be politeness. It can't be a misplaced sort of prudish behavior, the worst things in the Bible have already been named in the story of women like Tamar. Why does it say the wife of Uriah? Because what Matthew is doing is highlighting the sin of David. You see, the story in 2 Samuel tells you that in a time when kings went to war, stay, David stayed behind. Already the author is telling you, David is lazy, he's indolent, he's coasting, he's resting on his laurels when he should be out fighting to maintain and protect his borders. He's home. His army's at war. He's lounging. And at the highest point of the city, you can still visit in Israel these high points where David would have lived and walked. David went out and from at his privileged position as king, looked down at a woman who every indication in the text says is not being exhibitionistic. She's performing feminine hygiene. A very vulnerable moment for her, but a lustful moment for David. And she, he says, who's that? They come back to him with the report that should have killed the king's lust in a moment. They said, that's Bathsheba. She's the wife of Uriah. Who's Uriah? Uriah is one of David's key soldiers. Uriah is off fighting the king's wars. In fact, Uriah is one of David's mighty men. Uriah in the ancient world is something between a secret service agent and a special operations soldier. It's a name that David knew. He just didn't know his wife. And then the text says that David sent messengers to Bathsheba and watch the verb took her and sleeps with her. 
And in due time, she sends message back to the king saying, I'm pregnant. And David callously sends a message to the front by Uriah's own hand because he called the man home. He repeatedly tried to indulge him and to tell him, go home, enjoy your wife. On one occasion, he even got him drunk. But Uriah was more honorable than his commander and said, I can't go home and enjoy my home and my wife. All your armies are in the field. I'll sleep at the gate. Watch out for you, king. Not knowing he was sealing his fate. So David sends Uriah back to the battlefield with his death warrant in his hand. The man is too honorable to look at the secret message his commander has sent. They put him at the front of the battle and at the strategic moment when Uriah most needed a man on either side of him, they draw back, leave him alone, and he dies like a dog on the battlefield. And David callously says, that's war. Sword devours one and then another. The text says, God saw what David did and it displeased the Lord. And he sends him a prophet who tells him a story. He says, King, there's a man who lacks nothing, who owns all that he wants and all kinds of animals. And beside him was a poor man who owned one simple little ewe lamb that was like a family pet. And one day a guest came to visit the rich man, and rather than going into his own flocks, he took the ewe lamb from the poor man, slaughtered it, and served it to his guest. And David said, that man deserves to die. And Nathan, the prophet of God, famously said to David, you're that man. That's why it says in Matthew chapter 1, not Bathsheba, but the wife of Uriah. There's all kinds of tawdry sin. There's all kind of embarrassment in this story. The wife of Uriah, who is Bathsheba, is actually a woman who did not seduce King David. She was abused by King David, who lost her husband and eventually her baby due to his sin alone. And then finally, with relief, we come all the way down to verse 16, and it says, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Who's Mary? Now, finally, we're on familiar ground. Mary is a young woman who simply believed that God would keep his greatest promise through her. The activist says, say their names. I want you to look at their names. Tamar, a desperate Canaanite woman posed as a prostitute to sleep with her father-in-law, Rahab, an openly acknowledged public prostitute in Jericho who had the grace to trust God. Ruth, a woman from a despised, wicked people who somehow had the grace to trust God more than the Israelites around her and risked abuse among them in doing so. The wife of Uriah who endured something no woman should ever have to. And finally, Mary, a simple peasant girl from an ordinary family in Israel who heard the word of the Lord and said, I'm blessed for it. Let it be done according to the Lord's word. Why are these names in the story? This is not a dry recitation. 
What Matthew is showing his people is that God carefully kept his promise to them from the time he made them a nation through Abraham all the way to the day that they lived in where Jesus would have seen people alive. Why are these women's names in the story? What do we learn from them? Three things. Number one, God depends on no one's goodness but his own to save us. There are no heroes in this story except God himself. There are people of amazing faith in the story, but the greatest among them, Mary, called God when she received that announcement. She called God my Savior and called herself a simple servant who would be delighted and was amazed that the Lord had chosen her undeserving to fulfill his plan and keep his promise to save not only Israel, but the world. The names of these women and these tawdry, difficult, R-rated stories, the depth of the depravity and the wickedness contained in names like Tamar and Rahab and Bathsheba are there so that you will know that the goodness that God depends on to save you is not your own. It is only the goodness of God that can and will save you, and that is very good news. Because if it ever came down to you depending on your goodness, I have bad news for you, you're lost. If you had to stand in the presence of a righteous God clothed in your own righteousness, how long would you last? Not a moment. That's why the psalm says, oh Lord, if you were to mark iniquity, who could stand? God, if you kept score closely and marked every one of our sins against us, who could stand in front of you? The question is rhetorical because the answer is obvious. No one. You ever doubted your salvation? Ever doubted your forgiveness? I have. In that moment, let me tell you what's happening. You're looking at your life and your goodness, not the goodness in the life of Jesus. If your consciousness of sin brings you to the realization that you cannot possibly save yourself, that's your moment to run to Jesus. That's the moment you're going to be saved. From the moment you trust him, it's never ever about your goodness. It's always and only about his this is why the campaign from a few years ago, What Would Jesus Do?, was a well-meaning thing, but ultimately misguided. You remember that? Everybody was wearing bracelets for a little while, WWJD. And the idea was to ask yourself in the moment, what would Jesus do? That's a good and helpful question. Here's the bad news. You can't do it. Not all the time, not the way he did, not perfectly. That's the point of his goodness. That has always been the story. Isaiah announced it 700 years before the birth of Jesus. This should be in your, in your notes with me. Please read this with me. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Here's the birth announcement of Jesus 700 years before he arrived. Read it with me. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it 
and to uphold it with justiceness and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Lord of hosts means the Lord of armies. A host in the ancient world is an army. That translation kind of weakens the idea of what the Bible is actually saying. The God who commands heavenly armies, it's his zeal, it's his passion, it's his determination that is going to give the world a savior. He doesn't depend on us to save us for a moment. That's the goodness of the story. That in all of these things, God depended on his own character to save us. Number two, that means that God's grace can cover anyone. The desperate, the wicked, and the victims. This sermon's been hard for me to prepare and hard to think about because for the last several years, both as a pastor and in other volunteer positions, I've had to acquaint myself in a way that most people don't even know exists and good for them. I hope they don't have to discover it. How awful the world really is. How many people stand in the place of Ruth exposed to abuse? How many people actually endure what Bathsheba did taken advantage of by powerful people either by money and prestige or simply because those young women are very, very young indeed? The statistics tell me that an alarming number of you will come to this service and will watch us online, and your story has been marked by abuse. You were betrayed and hurt by someone from whom you could only expect protection. Those stories are in the scriptures because those are the people that Jesus was dying for. To people who thought they were worthless who thought they deserved to be treated that way, who were told they deserved to be treated that way, who were told they brought that wickedness upon themselves for the victims, Jesus died. For those who are wicked as well. The grace of the gospel says that forgiveness will even extend both to perpetrator and victim alike if only anyone and everyone will turn and trust Jesus. It's grace better than any pastor can tell you about. It is something literally that you do not deserve, that if you could fathom how very much God loves you, you would never get over it. And that is actually what heaven is going to be. You are going to be continually reminded and experiencing day by day in the new heaven and the new earth just how great your worth is, not because you achieved, but because God made you and seeing you lost in sin, whether as a victim or as a perpetrator, as the guilty or the person who had the crime done against them, God loved you and had mercy on you and came for you in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, to cover all of those sins. The story of Judah is redeemed and Jesus is given his name as a strong title at the end of Revelation because Jesus can even forgive such wicked sinners. And for those who have been crushed under abuse, Jesus stands especially close and in tenderness to them because his own lineage had such wicked men in it. Whatever's happened to you and whatever you've done, the grace and the mercy of Jesus is bigger. 
And finally, this, the names of the women in the story tells me that God uses ordinary people who trust him to do his work in the world. He saved Israel by Rahab, later by Ruth, and later using his simple, humble servant Mary, Jesus came into the world to save it. You can be part of that story too. The astonishing thing about this church, as ordinary as it is, and we've been reminded of our ordinariness in this pandemic, all the hype has been stripped out of the American church. Churches that were built on an attractional show had to shut down overnight the way the rest of us did, and the show disappeared. And we were left with the grim reality of a world that is dangerous, where death is not far off, but here's the good news. The gospel is real. The grace of God will extend to you. If you're feeling the weight of your guilt and your sin because you've stood on the wrong side of the story and you've been the guilty party, Jesus came for you. If you're one of those helpless ones like Bathsheba who were taken and had something taken from you, the grace of the gospel extends to you because Jesus came to save anyone who would trust him. And all of these women and Rahab and Mary in particular stand along with Ruth as ordinary women from wildly different places and in different times who simply had the grace to take God at his word and now stand in his word as heroes, not as saviors, but as instruments, as ordinary people that God used to do his work in the world and God can do the same through you. God routinely uses ordinary people like you and me to do his saving work in the world. Make no mistake, he does the saving, but he uses ordinary people like you and me through prayer, through witness, through giving, through loving service, something that you think made no difference whatsoever. That you think you've wasted your time, you've cast down your offering, your goodness, your counsel, your gospel witness, you've put that out into the world and received nothing in return. Listen, in God's hands, there is literally no telling how that may resound in eternity. I promise you that Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba and Mary never in their wildest dreams imagined that somehow their names would be recorded and their stories would be redeemed because through the goodness and the wickedness of people, a perfectly just and merciful God was always at work to do what his zeal promised and what his zeal alone could do, bring the Savior and the world to trust, to save anybody who would simply trust Jesus. So if you're just about worn out and wondering what's the point and wondering who you are and if your identity, your name, your story matters anymore, let me tell you the good news of this story, the beauty of this story is that it tells us that the women in the story tell us that God is so good that anyone can be part of this story. And if you don't know Jesus, that's where your story begins by seeing your need of a Savior and humbly coming to Jesus and telling him, I believe you, I believe your good news, and if you're a Christian, to rise up from your exhaustion, from the mundane, hard, demanding life you've been living and seeing yourself as dearly loved by the God who did all this 
to get back to the faithful service you owe the God who loves you so much so that you too can be part of what God is doing in this world. Let's pray together, shall we? If you don't know Christ, let me speak to you very personally and directly for just a moment. Would today please, in the name of Jesus, be the, name you, be the day you trust him? Could I ask you please to turn away from your sin and turn yourself over to Jesus? I'm not asking you to promise to do better. I'm actually asking you to confess to God, not to me. I'm just the messenger to confess to God that you can't do better that you've given up on doing better. You're turning to him instead and you're trusting him to save you. If you do that and you're here in person, please pray with me. If you're online, please pray along with me and ask Jesus simply to save you from your sin. Tell him you're turning away from your sin. You're giving up on saving yourself and you're going to ask him to save you instead. And if you do that, please send us a text message. If you're watching online, send me an email if you wish from the church website. If you're here in person, fill out a card and let us know that you've taken this step of trust in Jesus. And Christian, have you been feeling far from the grace of God? Look at the people God saved. Look at the people God used. Victims and perpetrators. Great, terrible sinners. And sad, pitiable victims. All alike. Forgiven by His grace. If only they would trust Him. Used greatly by God as David was in spite of his sin. As Mary was in spite of her ordinary upbringing. Giving no credit to herself. Calling God her Savior as Ruth was, a woman whose nation was condemned in Scripture and forbidden to come into the place of God, actually in the birth line of the king, simply because she trusted him. Christian, don't give up on serving the Lord in your day and your time. Your normalcy, your ordinariness, your weakness, that's the point. That's how God gets the glory. That's how you get to be amazed that your simple efforts, your simple witness, your meager, stammering prayers, your small offerings of love, of money, of whatever God has placed in your hand, those very normal things can be used greatly by God. And you won't even know it in the moment. It'll take heaven. It'll take heaven for you to know how greatly you were used because God simply is that good. Father, I pray that you would encourage my brothers and sisters who are here this morning. Strengthen them, Lord, according to their need. This pandemic has dragged on so long, many have lost some hope. They've lost things that they need. They've lost things they've come to depend upon. Refresh them, come alongside them, bless them, provide for them. Lord, help them take the long view and see how their faithfulness in difficulty will be rewarded and will be used by your faithfulness. God, if there's a single person here still watching, still sitting here listening to me pray, if there's a single person here who doesn't know you as Savior, I pray right now 
they would turn to you and say, Jesus, I believe. I confess myself a sinner. I ask you to be my savior. Please save me. And I pray that they would let us know so that we could celebrate with them and pray with them. And we would walk together with you, Lord, in faithfulness, knowing that we will be used in Jesus' name. Amen.